You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Reading from the gospel or the good news according to Luke chapter 14 verses 7 through 24. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends and your brothers and your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you and in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to, those, uh, to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please, have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said to him, Sir, What you've commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for this building. We're thankful for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his teaching us. Thank you for his living and dying for us. Might we love him and love our neighbor even more as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. How are we liking this place? You're whiter. You're whiter. I have to use more of my peripheral vision. While we're still in the same church, while we still are the same church, a church is a people and not a building. The word church itself means assembly or gathering. So uh, it's where we assemble, where we gather is actually important. It's actually, it actually matters. And I I'm really enjoying this place already, and we'll, Lord willing, be enjoying it together for many years to come. If you're visiting with us today, perhaps this is a good time for you as we all observe who we want to be about. We're actually thankful for a fresh start 
in a new place. It gives us an opportunity to, to perhaps zoom out and look, observe who we are, who we want to be, who and what we find valuable. So with that in mind, we can be thankful for a new week this week, not necessarily because of a new building, but because uh, our long national nightmare is finally ending the winter of our discontent. Baseball season starts on Thursday. Praise the Lord. Amen. I told you guys a couple weeks ago, feel free, when I speak for you, feel free to encourage me with affirmation. Amen. Uh, well, I love baseball. Always have, perhaps even more than I did in high school or college, uh, because uh, in the last 20 years or so, there's been a huge change in how people view the game. For many and most years, uh, the way that you determined whether a baseball player was good or not was to see if he hit a lot of home runs, if he had a good batting average and had a lot of RBIs, if he struck out a lot of guys, uh, perhaps if he just looked like a ball player. But perhaps you've read the book or seen the movie, but beginning with the Moneyball Oakland A's, smaller teams began focusing on different skills, different values, and now most baseball front offices are either run by or are heavily influenced by like Ivy League economics professionals. Here's the point, and this wasn't just an excuse to talk about baseball from the pulpit, which I will take anytime I can. As human beings, we are immediately drawn toward that which is visibly what we assume is valuable. Immediately and visibly flashy, strong, fast. We wrongly value some people more than other people because of what we think that they can offer us, all the while ignoring what is truly valuable. And what you've just heard Dave read from Luke 14, Jesus completely turns the notion of what makes a person valuable on its head. As is often the case in the Gospel of Luke, this story that we read about, this whole chapter, is framed about around dinner tables. Jesus is at a dinner party, and then he moves into a very pointed and a very incisive parable about another dinner party, about a banquet. So we're going to ask ourselves... As we take a one-week break from 1 Timothy this evening, we're going to ask ourselves and ask this text two different questions. Where is value found, and how should we find it? Where is value found? How should we find it? What makes something valuable? What should we be pursuing together as a church? So, first of all, where is value found? First, a little bit of context for what's going on in here, since we are just parachuting right in to this chapter in Luke's gospel. Jesus is invited to a Pharisee banquet on the Sabbath day. There is a sick man there, and the Pharisees begin to just observe, to see what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus, before they do anything, he asks them, is it lawful? Is it lawful for him to heal this man? And they don't answer. So Jesus just heals him. And he says in verse 5, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Jesus is saying that we naturally care for, we naturally move toward, we naturally help those whom we love. We do all of those. We naturally care for and move toward those things that we think are valuable, no matter the circumstances. Think about your children if you have them. It doesn't matter the circumstances. If they are in trouble, you're going to do whatever it takes to help them, to save them. Think about even the modern-day equivalent of, like, oxen. 
Think about your house or your car or the things that you own that you consider valuable. You will do what it takes to care for these things and to uh, make sure that they are still cared for ongoingly. So Jesus has compassion for the sick and the hurting. He loves them and he finds them valuable of his time and his attention, no matter the circumstances. In fact, those kinds of people that the Pharisees were assuming that were cursed by God. Just look at them. God is not with this person. He's sick. But in now looking around at this dinner party that Jesus is at, he, he makes some observations and then he just gives some practical advice. In these days, the table would have likely been, uh, a party table would have been like in a U shape and the dinner host, the party host would sit square in the middle and then the person whom he most wanted to honor or value uh, would sit at his right hand. So Jesus says, don't just assume when you show up that you're going to sit in this seat, that you're going to sit at the right-hand seat. You're going to think very highly of yourself for three to four minutes. You're going to feel really happy that everyone is looking at you and looking, oh, wow, he must be really important sitting in that seat. This guy really likes him. I mean, I got invited to this guy's party, but I don't get to have that seat. But then, when someone else walks into the room who is more honorable or more valuable to the party host than the guy who was sitting in here, then he asks this guy to move and go sit further on down and invites this latecomer, the more honorable latecomer, to sit in this seat. How humiliating. The place of temporary honor, maybe three or four minutes, of feeling really good about himself and really enjoying that other people think really highly of him, has now turned to shame. So rather... Jesus gives practical advice here. He says, rather, sit like really far away from the place of honor. Show up early, but show up early so that you can not just make sure to get the good seat, but that you can make sure to get the bad seat. Sit like at the very far end of the you, at the very end of the table. Then, later on at the party, everybody's having a good time, and then the party host is going to look down and see you down there. He's like, what are you doing back there? Like, come further up. Come sit here in the place of temporary shame will turn to honor. How great will it be, rather than publicly shamed, to be publicly honored? And then Jesus relates this practical advice to, spirit, to a spiritual reality in verse 11, where he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He's saying that value is not found in what you or what others think of you. Value is not found in what is temporarily recognized, but then is lost. Value is found in what the host of the party ultimately thinks of you, ultimately recognizes, ultimately honors. And then Jesus turns his attention to not just if you are a party guest, but if you are the actual party host. Don't just invite people that might return the favor and invite you to a party further on down the line. But invite people who can never repay you. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And here, Jesus is confronting something that we've talked about and thought about here several times together, something that is innately in us, innately, innately and sinfully within us. And that is our desire to treat human beings just like any other commodity in our lives. Like, think about why you want to buy this car rather than that car. Or you want to go see this movie rather than go to that concert. Or you want to eat this meal or this snack over and against this meal or this snack. 
We pursue and we value things that we think will give us more happiness, more respect, more accolades, more comfort. Because this car is bigger or faster, or it is a brand that people respect in our culture, I will buy that car. Or because I think this movie will make me laugh, it won't challenge me that much, I'm going to watch it instead. Because this food just tastes better, or because this food will not make my stomach feel bad later. We choose healthy foods or unhealthy foods for different reasons, but for reasons that we think are all related to happiness, to joy. None of these decisions are necessarily or inherently sinful. We just as humans will always make every decision. It doesn't matter what the decision is, option A or option B, we will always choose the option that we are convinced will give us more joy, more satisfaction. Always. Like every time. Like every single time you make a decision, you choose the option that you think will give you the most joy. That certainly applies to if we will choose to honor God or choose to sin. What do we believe in the moment is most satisfying? And because we regularly treat people no differently than we treat cars or movies or snacks, we make decisions based on personal satisfaction. As long as that person is a net benefit to me, as long as he's going to return the favor and invite me to a party, as long as this person makes me laugh, as long as this person makes me feel good about myself, he or she will ultimately get me into better social circles. This person just makes life generally more enjoyable then I'm going to keep hanging out with this person. But the moment that person becomes a net negative in my life, when there is less good than there is good, because they're awkward, because the conversation can be difficult, because they demand a lot of my time or even my money, because they tend to drag me into not higher social circles but lower ones, because they just make life less enjoyable then we'll do everything we can to avoid them or even exclude them altogether. We elevate ourselves to be the arbiter of what is important based on completely arbitrary standards that God couldn't care less about. We think that the pretty or the attractive people demand more of our attention, while physically, the less physically attractive people don't. We think that the healthy or the rich or the smart will increase our own value when in fact Spending time with, Jesus says, spending time with the poor, the sick, the socially marginalized might in fact ultimately bring you more value. Not to you socially now, perhaps. Not overall increasing your just enjoyment in life, perhaps in the moment, day by day. But in your future, one day, the table host will look down at the end of the table where you've been hanging out with folks that haven't been increasing your honor or your enjoyment and say, what are you doing down there? I see the way that you are treating and caring for these kinds of people. Come, come sit with me. You have not been honored in your life, but now you will be honored. Come and sit with me. This may seem selfishly motivated, doesn't it? Like, to care for the marginalized and the uncared for, just so that I might get future honor, that seems to be selfishly motivated. And it is. Because those who are God's children ought to, more and more, day by day and decade, decade by decade, live for the pleasure of the Father. 
live for not only doing what he has asked of us and loves from us in the now, but living toward the future pleasure of the Father. Now, of course, even that can be twisted into an exhausting and a lifelong attempt to earn our way into God's favor, to earn our way into his acceptance. Remember that we are hopelessly meritorious. No matter what we know and believe to be true, we are hopelessly trying to earn our way into God's favor, earning our own merit. Our hearts naturally want to earn favor and acceptance, but only Jesus can live the life of perfect obedience that we should live. Only Jesus can earn our favor and acceptance into the family and into the perfect and stable and safe love of the Father. On Thursday night, I saw on Twitter a hypothetical nighttime conversation. Maybe this wasn't hypothetical. Maybe, maybe the person who uh, posted this actually has this conversation with one of his children every night before they go to bed. He says this is a good nighttime conversation for every parent and child where the parent says to the child, do you see my eyes? The child says, yes. Do you see that I see your eyes? The child says, yes. Do you know that I love you? Yes. Do you know, I gotta stop looking at my kids, sorry. <laughs> uh, do you know that I will love you no matter what good things you do? Yes. Do you know that I will love you no matter what bad things you do? Yes. Do you know who else loves you like that? God. Even more than me? Yes. When a child truly believes that from his mother or father, that he or she is truly safe and accepted no matter what good things or bad things the child may do, then living in love, living in that safe, secure pleasure of the Father is just a natural response. Living into the identity of a safe and loved child. And this is the natural response of any Christian who is safe and secure in the love of Christ who lives more and more for the present and future pleasure of God, of honoring and valuing the things that God honors and values. Not the flashiest, not the biggest, not the strongest, not the fastest, not the wealthiest, not the most attractive, but the humble. So now, getting now to the humble, where do we find it? Where do we find the valuable things that God values. How should we then, in other words, how should we then live? What, we should, what should we be moving toward? Jesus says that we ought to be moving toward the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Why? Why? Is it just to be nice? Is it just to cultivate uh, better character qualities in ourselves? Is it just to force ourselves into loving others when there is no other chance for love in return? Is it just to put ourselves in situations where there, are, there is no return for the present? Not quite. So after Jesus says to invite the forgotten outsiders of society, in verse 15, the guy at the party, and I think Dave read this really well, he got the tone right of the guy who says this what he says what he says in verse 15 this dude says blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of god which is a very strange thing to say 
But many commentators think that this guy is like, he's trying to test Jesus' theology. He is using a common proverb that would have been used uh, talking about a future banquet of the Messiah, probably referring to like Isaiah 25. And he says this thing, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he and the others are likely now waiting for what Jesus' response will be. An expected response to this kind of proverb would have been, And may we all be among the righteous who sit at that table, who eat the bread of God. May that day come quickly. They were probably hoping and expecting Jesus to say. As if, did we just hear Jesus right? That we are to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the poor? But look at their circumstances. Surely God is not with them. So let me give Jesus an opportunity to correct the mistaken theology that he just spouted out without thinking. But Jesus isn't playing this game. The dude has put a test down on Jesus' desk, and Jesus is not taking out the number two pencil. He's not even taking the test. He just starts, he gets out of his desk, and he just starts walking around the classroom, and he tells a story. As any time he does when he tells a parable, Jesus is trying to sneak past some preconceived notions that his hearers might have about the world. So what is Jesus trying to sneak past here? He's trying to sneak past that those who were invited to the future Isaiah 25 banquet of the Messiah actually might not show up. And those who appeared to not be invited to this future banquet of the Messiah are actually the ones who will be there. And so he tells the parable that Dave read. So this parable is kind of weird. But just like today, when you're hosting a party, you have to figure out how many people are going to come before you go buy the food. You ask for RSVPs. You don't want to buy way more food than you need and waste it. And you also don't want to buy far too few or far too little food, so there's not enough. So he sends out some RSVPs, and then after the host has made the plans and the preparations, he sends out a servant to say, come, now everything is ready. He's like walking through the town with like a triangle saying, the the banquet is ready, come to the banquet. And then after all this, after the plans and preparations have been made, the food has been bought and the tables have been set, we see in verse 3, or we see verse 18, three extraordinarily ridiculous excuses. The first guy says, who's already said, I'm going to be there. He now says, I've bought a field, and I must go and see it. One commentator says, this is like a Westerner who calls his wife, and he tells her that he will be late for supper because he's just purchased a new house over the phone. And having signed the check, he now wants to drive across town and take a look at it. Like like whenever we buy a house, we go through extraordinary measures of inspection and of observation to make sure with this huge purchase that we are actually buying something that is quality. It's like this guy is scrambling to make an excuse, and he doesn't even give a good one at that. Basically, he's saying, ah, man, I know I said I was going to be there, and I'd really like to be there, but I need to wash my hair. Like, it's just a lame, lame excuse. Everyone knows by the lameness of the excuse is that what he's saying is, is I actually just don't want to come. I actually don't want to be there. Or verse 19, the second guy says, I bought five yoke of oxen and I must go examine them. Same thing, like you don't buy oxen without a careful examination. You don't buy a car without test driving it first. 
Or verse 20, the third guy says, I've married a wife and therefore cannot come. Maybe he's saying that since women aren't invited to this party, he'd rather stay home with her. He doesn't want her to feel left out or something. Still, he's saying, I would rather do something else than be at your party. The servant comes and he tells the master what the excuses are of the invited guests and what is the master's response in verse 21. Anger. Anger. But what does his anger turn into? His anger turns into grace of welcoming the poor, of welcoming the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So he sends the servant out a second time to bring the outcasts, bring them in. And then after that, there are, there's still room at the party. So the master tells him to go out to the highways, to the hedges, to the far reaches of the city. Go out to where the foreigners might live and tell them to come. Compel them, he says in verse 23. They're not going to believe you that they're invited. So like grab their hands and drag them to the party. I want them here that badly. So what in the world is going on? What in the world is happening here with this story? Perhaps this is over-allegorizing, but here's what I think that Jesus is saying. Stay with me here. If you want to keep your finger in Luke 14 here, flip back to Isaiah 56, about halfway back to where you were, or you can just listen. Isaiah 56. Jesus, or Isaiah, is looking forward to a time of future, of when all things are made right, to a time of justice. The Lord says through Isaiah, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. As I'm reading this, and as, or as you're reading, think about the parable that we just read. For soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath for not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. The eunuchs, the outcasts, the foreigners, the Gentiles, these are the ones to whom the gospel will go. The shepherds of Israel, later on in Isaiah 56, they are only concerned with themselves. So Jesus here in the Gospel of Luke, is explaining exactly the same kind of thing that Isaiah and all of the prophets before him had told, that the Gospel would move toward the Gentiles, to the nations. God's people are now not just to be the ethnic people of Israel, but all people. All people who would hear and come. 
And here's where the rubber meets the road for us. Many of us might find ourselves identifying with all kinds of different characters in this parable. Perhaps you, tonight, feel like one of the ones who do not belong, who feel like the outcast. Maybe you've never felt like you've really fit in, in your family, at your job, in your culture, in this church. Maybe you don't do or don't act or you don't like the same things that other people do. And again, let's be honest, maybe maybe just acknowledge that you don't feel very included here tonight, right now. Maybe you feel out of place tonight. You've never quite felt comfortable around church folks. Well, can I first say that I think I speak for all of us here, that we are really, really glad that you are here. What makes you valuable to the God who has made you What makes you valuable to the God who knows the number of hairs on your head is not what other people think of you, is not the color of your skin, is not the level of your education or how much money you might bring in weekly or monthly or annually. God knows you better than you know you. We don't know you that well, but we're glad you're here, and we want to be a people who loves and values the things that God loves and values. And if he knows the number of hairs on your head and your name, then you are important to him, and therefore you are important to us. And we're glad that you're here. But also know this, that what unites the people of God through time and culture is not shared language, is not shared levels of paychecks or shared levels of education even cultural preferences. But what unites God's people through time and culture is a shared faith in the same Christ. A faith in the blood shed for people who couldn't be more different from one another, who are now made into a people who are closer than those who share DNA. The gospel of the love of God that he would love you enough to send his son to live and die for you, to not just forgive you of your sins, yes, to not just cleanse you of your guilty conscience, yes, but to make you a son or a daughter, that he might dwell within you by his spirit and to give you joy and peace. We hope that you would know and trust that gospel, perhaps for the first time tonight. So perhaps you have felt excluded Tonight, you felt excluded for much of your life. But the good news of the gospel was that Jesus was excluded so that you might be included. You are welcome here tonight, and we would love to talk to you more and more tonight or ongoingly about how you might feel included into the love and joy and peace of God through Christ. Maybe for others of us, though, Maybe we don't feel that excluded, but we're more like the kinds of folks who are just scrambling to make excuses. It's really easy for us to think of ourselves as better than those dumb Pharisees and more included than those who feel excluded. 
But then the Lord of the party sends out the invitation to come. The Lord of the party sends out the invitation for you to ongoingly eat with him, to hang out with him, to rest in his presence and follow him. Nah, man, I'm good. I'm, life is just really, really busy now. Like School is really busy now. There's this work project that is just super busy. I'll get around to it later. Like, making my life fully about Jesus would really stress out my family, would really make it more difficult, me to, for, difficult for me to advance in my career. But not surprisingly, after this parable, Jesus says in verses 26 and 27, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We don't have time to go into this completely, but when Jesus says a person who does not hate his mother or father or his family, he's not encouraging all of his disciples to go and start breaking the fifth commandment, to start dishonoring your father and mother. This is a Middle Eastern way of saying love less. He who does not love his father and mother and brother and sister and yes and even his own life who does not love all of those things less than Christ he cannot be my disciple being the people of God as Jesus is trying to confront here is not just living an easy carefree life in exactly the way that we would want to live it and then just sprinkle on a little bit of Jesus here and there when it's convenient Following Jesus can often be difficult, can often be costly, but it is the way to the most satisfying meal imaginable. Even if not fully felt and enjoyed in this life at all. So, your excuses are lame. Really lame. The Lord of the party is asking you to come and enjoy him to enjoy this eternally satisfying banquet and you're saying you'd rather not because you'd rather wash your hair. You're telling him, no, I don't actually want to be with you. I don't want to come. So this parable confronts those of us who, and let's be honest, most of us here tend to, maybe not, of the course of our life, but can tend toward ongoingly making these kinds of excuses, can we not? That's where the grace of Christ is even more mind-blowing. But there is another character that hopefully the rest of us might identify with more and more. We heard the invitation to Jesus, perhaps. We've considered the cost of discipleship, but considering those things, we still say, yes, the cost of discipleship can be costly, but it is worth it, and I want to be with Christ at his banquet. Maybe we have felt like outcasts in the past, but now we have a deep sense of belonging, belonging to Jesus, belonging to his people, and who is left in this parable? Which character is left? The master servant, who is sent out to extend the news of the invitation, to grab hands and to compel people to come and to be with the, the dinner host. This year, the, the president of our denomination, J.D. Greer, has encouraged us all 
to ask ourselves one question of 2019. This question is, who is your one? That is, who is one person in 2019 that you can begin to daily pray for? Begin moving toward with greater intentionality and thought and care, friendship and evangelism, that they might know Jesus. We can often be intimidated, right, by this idea of evangelism. Like, theoretically, we agree that we want people to come to faith in Christ. We want to see people to know Him, but we also don't want to be pushy, and it can be a very intimidating thing, and we can be just flooded with guilt about how we're not sharing Christ with others, or often we're just afraid. Well, I love the simplicity of this question, who's your one? Because it's not saying, what is the best, like, city-transforming way that you can have a goal to see you personally, a hundred people come to Christ in 2019 or something like that, but just one. Who is one person to be moving toward with serious prayer and intentionality? And can you imagine? As of Friday night, we have 167 members of this church. If 167 of us grabbed the hand of someone, compelled them, pleaded with them to come and meet the host of the party, he has satisfied me, and I want him to satisfy you. Like, can you imagine? Our church would double. We would have to start thinking about planting a new church 12 months from now because of all of the new life in Christ with one person in all of our lives. Who is your one that we can be thinking about, praying toward, and holding each other accountable towards and moving toward in evangelism this year? But the master's servant isn't just sent to his friends, isn't just sent to his one. Who is the master's servant sent out to? To the outsiders, to those who feel like they presently do not belong. Maybe the real reason the servant has to grab a hand and compel them to come is because this outsider doesn't fully trust the servant. He doesn't believe the goodness of the invitation. Because who's this guy? He just showed up. The invitation sounds too good to be true, and even if this person did come to the banquet, I don't really know if I'd feel like I'd fit in at that banquet. People aren't like me. Perhaps it took time and energy to lead a blind man to the center of the city where the banquet is. Perhaps it took a while for the servants to build up some trust. It's really taxing to get a lame man who cannot walk to a banquet. Think about that. How is this servant going to get a guy who can't walk to the banquet? It might cost him personally, financially. But this is why we've committed from day one as a church for our small groups, our GCs, our gospel communities, to not just be inwardly concerned about ourselves. Yes, we, we want to care for one another and encourage one another. We want to care for the body extraordinarily well. But we also want to care for the outsider among us in this city. Several of our groups are serving regularly at the Westside Homeless Shelter. 
There's a box outside right in front of the cookies if you've brought some donations to get to that. Several of our groups are serving regularly at CareNet pregnancy centers, meeting with and encouraging mothers who are in need or who feel out of place, even perhaps with their own families. Several of our groups are meeting with and becoming friends with international students who, they're literal foreigners who daily feel out of place. Several of our groups are regularly attending and serving at the homework diner, which rotates between three Title I elementary schools surrounding us here in this neighborhood. But here's where a reset might be needed for us. Why are we doing this? Are we just like looking for a way to find some community service hours? And we might feel good about ourselves that we're like really serving the community to meet merely physical needs, important and often dire physical needs that we ought to be concerned with and ought to be concerned with meeting. But just that? Yes, but no. That we might meet someone who feels outside. Outside of God's love, outside of belonging in any real sense, grab their hand, compel them to meet the host of the banquet and say, be satisfied. Be satisfied. The Lord is good. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And this may not happen the very first time that you meet someone. In fact, it probably won't. Making and cultivating relationships with folks who the world would look at and see and look at these two people and say, these two people have nothing in common. And perhaps this person might feel that we have nothing in common. Why are you even trying to talk to me? This can take years, months, or years to gain trust. So a one-time service project probably isn't going to do anything. Many of us are just now beginning to get some sense of traction in these relationships. But because human beings are important to God, they are important to us. Especially to those who are hurting and are alone and are brokenhearted in need. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and we want to be the means by which people feel God's nearness to the brokenhearted. The problem can be Though, that while we agree with all these principles, generally, when it comes right down to it, we go right back to our excuse-making, don't we? How many times in the last, however long you've been with us, half a year, two and a half years, how many times has it been a night to go serve at the winter shelter, or the night to go to the homework diner, and you've at least thought of, man, it'd be so much easier to stay home tonight. To get that project done, my family would be better served if we just watched TV together tonight. Or I just don't want to go. The people are difficult there. Five years from now, we want this church to look more and more like Albuquerque. Greater diversity across ethnic and socioeconomic lines and the way that that is going to happen. We will not stumble into that five years from now. It will not happen on its own, and apart from the power of God's Spirit moving through His people. The way that this is going to happen is that over a year, 
over two years, over five years, you have grabbed hands. Not just invited them to come to church on Sundays. That's not the goal. Yes, that's a, that would be a wonderful byproduct if they were with us here on Sundays, but that they might meet Christ. And that comes oftentimes just over dinner tables before they come to a church service here with us. Meet Jesus with me. So Christ Church, let's continue to grow in our, our hospitality. Being a hospitable, hospitable time for everyone and anyone who is here with us on Sundays and a hospitable time in our homes and our dinner tables. We just talked about this in the membership class, but what is the same word, the same root that sounds very close to being hospitable? Hospital. We want our church and our homes to be a hospital for the sick to come and meet the doctor, to meet the, the one who has healed us Let's keep moving towards those who need to meet Jesus and to be healed, to enjoy the banquet with him and his people forever. We're going to get right back into 1 Timothy next week. We're in a new building and a new stage of life. So I am hopeful, we are all hopeful that this might be a time where we think it's a new start. A new start with renewed vision and energy and excitement toward the sick, the broken, the outsider among us. Let's ask for God's help that this might be a reality. Oh God, we, we do need your help. We are a people just full of excuses. It's something that comes naturally and easy to us. We're a people often more concerned with comfort than your kingdom. Father, forgive me. I know that you love me no matter the good or the bad in my life because of what Jesus has done for me, his life of only good on my behalf. And I know that by my faith in his blood, you are pleased with me, but help my knowledge of your pleasure in me, help that to now move me, to send me, to move me and send me to those who do not know you, who do not currently love you, and experience your pleasure in them through Christ. Give me wisdom, give me care, give me intentionality with my one. Help us all to be part of the means of your nearness, your love, your justice to an uncaring and an unjust world. Might our church more and more be a place of inclusion for those who feel excluded by the world, by their families, who might currently feel even excluded by you and help them to feel included, welcomed, and even transformed by the power of the blood of Christ shed for them. We confidently pray all of these things in his wonderful name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.